From Advisory Board, we are bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. The last year has forced a reckoning with much of the way we provide healthcare. And as the stay at home economy has grown, there are very real questions about how much care can truly move into the home, especially when it comes to the elderly. So, to discuss the future of providing hospital level care inside the home, I brought the co founder and CEO of Contessa. Travis Messina. Hey, Travis. Welcome to Radio Advisory. Hey, Ray. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here today. Where are you dialing into the podcast from? Today, I'm actually in the office in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a nice fake spring day, as we call it here. Mm, Yes, I know. I feel like we're finally getting out of our everyone having seasonal effectiveness disorder. And I, I truly believe that there's There's no more obvious moment where you go, wow, the winter has been hard than when it's suddenly 50 degrees in March and everybody wants to get outside. And in Nashville, we're um, oblivious to the fact that it is still a little chilly, so everyone's wearing shorts and short sleeve shirts. And so a little aggressive for me, but um, (laughs) but it's all right. Because I'm speaking to a co-founder, I I kind of always like to ask, what's kind of the inspiration behind this company? Why start something that's focused on hospital at home? And also, why Contessa, right? That's not really a a healthcare name. Yeah. um, My family members asked if I was a glutton for punishment because they'd say, why are you going to try and convince hospitals to not admit patients to their hospitals? But the (laughs) rationale was... Working at Vanguard Health, we were doing a number of things to prevent hospitalizations in our pop health initiatives, Mm -hmm. but no one ever focused on that highest cost encounter. And could we come up with a different way to render that level of care? Because I, I, I thought if we can do that appropriately and not jeopardize patient safety, we could go after a huge addressable market and really help in the cost curve. Hmm. Um, in terms of the name, so my family comes from a town in Sicily called Contessa in Tallina. And it's not just about naming it after the town, but they immigrated to New Orleans where they started the Contessa and Tolina Society of New Orleans, which helped the Contessioti get care in their home because they couldn't oh, wow. access the American healthcare system. They, they, didn't have, they didn't have money and they didn't speak English. And so it brought the care to their houses. And I thought it was a, a nice homage to, to the motherland, if you will. Yeah, I love that. So Contessa was formed... Um, by myself and a number of my colleagues. And our main goal, Ray, was to partner with health systems to launch hospital-at-home programs. So hmm. taking patients that need to be admitted to the gin med bed and rendering all that same level of care in the home. And I do want to be careful about buzzwords, right? I think that semantics actually really matter here, especially when you just said the words hospital-at-home. What does that actually mean? That I, I can't thank you enough for asking that question, Ray, because there are so many companies and health systems and people out there that are talking about hospital level care at home. And it means a thousand different things to a thousand different people. When Contessa talks about hospital at home, we are talking about those patients that have failed ambulatory treatment and need to be admitted to a facility for several nights of care, typically for medical conditions. So give me an example maybe about how that would work. What's a, a example medical condition, you know, can't be taken care of in the ambulatory space, needs hospital level care, but tell me how that actually works in the patient's home. Yep. 
So um, if you think about the admissions to health systems, about 40-ish percent of them are for medical conditions, general medical complications. And so let's take congestive heart failure or COPD or pneumonia. Those are very frequent cases that we treat in our hospital at home programs. Many times those patients can be treated with ambulatory treatment plans. However, those plans often fail. And that's when those patients require to be admitted to a facility for several nights. And so if we have, say, for instance, a pneumonia patient, they've probably had oral antibiotics for a number of days and it's just not taking care of that pneumonia. And so they're going to need more continuous monitoring, oxygen treatments, infusion antibiotics, much higher acuity services. And we are able to kind of replicate all the care they'd get in the hospital in their home. How? How does that? I mean, when I think of hospital level care, I think that is care that requires specialized equipment, specialized technology, specialized training and staff. How do you actually make that happen in someone's home? So the number one... um, I guess, misperception is that people think that you can do hospital at home without hospitals. And we partner with health systems and hospitals because when patients need that level of care, 80 to 85% of the time, they actually show up in the emergency departments. Oh. Yep. So we have team members that are based within the emergency departments of our partner health systems. They identify those patients as needing that level of care. We use admitting hospitalists no differently than a hospitalist would admit to the floor. They admit into our program. And we send that patient home. If you think about a traditional general medical admission, they're getting rounding by a nurse every few hours, but they're not continuously monitored. You need continuous monitoring, you're going to the ICU. Hmm. So we send nurses to the home twice a day, and they render labs, plain film imaging, infusion services. And once a day while they're there, a hospitalist rounds on that patient virtually using a remote patient monitoring kit. Oh, interesting. Okay. And and this, I think, is top of mind for the entire healthcare industry right now because, as we know, COVID-19 has just put a spotlight on site-of-care shifts in general. I want to take a moment and talk about the role that Contessa has played when it comes to the COVID-19 crisis specifically, the direct impacts of battling this pandemic. What did you see as Contessa's role in the fight against this crisis? There's been several instances in which Contessa has been leveraged throughout the pandemic. The one that immediately comes to mind is the work that we did in New York. So we are partnered with the Mount Sinai Health System. And as everyone knows, New York was hit hardest and first by the surge. And so I think it's okay to say this, but um, at one point in the spring, Mount Sinai had every single bed in their system filled by a COVID-positive patient. Wow. And there were just simply not enough beds. They had tents, and everybody knows that they were using the Javits Center, all these things. Patients were dying in, in urgent care centers, right? I, yeah, absolutely. And so we began um, using our model, A, to free up capacity so they could use that bed for higher acuity patients, uh, first and foremost. And um, while we first were not planning to treat COVID positive patients, it became a necessity. The physicians, oh, really? came, to, yep, the physicians came to us and said, look, I, I know that this is something that we haven't done, but we have to come up with a care plan. We have to come up with it quickly and make sure that we're not jeopardizing patient safety. And so that was probably the second use case, if you will, where we stepped in and started treating COVID positive patients at home. To protect capacity, to stave off outbreaks, and ultimately to just treat more more patients. 
obviously there are use cases beyond the surges, especially as I'm going to knock on wood as I say this, <laughs> surges are seem to finally be getting under control here in the United States. So beyond the kind of direct impacts of the pandemic, what are the other strategic reasons that an organization might want to partner with Contessa to invest in home-based care? Yeah. So, I mean, having come from a big integrated health system and having a, you know, I'm more of a finance and accounting guy by training. I'm not a clinician. Yeah. Um, when we created the company, we were trying to think of the ways that we could satisfy, just as you said, strategic reasons why a health system should offer this as part of their toolkit, um, for lack of a better description. Because if you're not at capacity and you don't own the premium dollar risk, why on earth would you willingly take a patient you could send to the floor and get reimbursed for it and send right. them home, Right. Right. And so those were the questions that we were really trying to solve when we started the company. And ultimately, I think, you know, before the, before the pandemic, we came up with a couple of reasons. One, medical admissions typically have a very poor margin profile from an economic perspective for health yep. systems. And so we thought that if we could come up with the appropriate reimbursement structure, a system would be financially incentivized to do so as opposed to, to admit to a hospital at home program as opposed to admit to their floor. Because it also means that opens up capacity for more profitable services for that hospital. That's that's um, a, that's not exactly the argument that I would use because hmm. I would never say that you could guarantee you're going to backfill that bed. Sure. And more importantly, how do you know that you're not going to backfill that bed with a Medicaid patient or a no-pay patient? Sure. Um, and so we look at it when we do the financial analysis, we always assume that you are not going to backfill that debt. And what would the financial impact be under our risk arrangement versus the traditional healthcare or hospital delivery system? I, I do want to go deeper into the financial. So I think what I just heard you say is that you create the right reimbursement structure to make it make sense financially for this kind of medical care to exist in the home. What actually, like, how does that work? What is the reimbursement structure? Yep. So we use a bundled payment approach for hmm. our hospital at home programs. All of our health plan contracts are risk-based arrangements for 30 or 60 day episodes of care. And so we're not just looking at what health plans reimburse the hospital, but we're looking at all the related spin over that 30 to 60 days. And that is what enables a health system to participate in economics that are outside of what is in their control. And that's where you make the financial benefit to a health system that's not at capacity. When you're talking to health system executives, let's say mm -hmm. specifically the CFO, what are the biggest questions or pushback that they give you when it comes to this payment model? Um, so it's, it's been funny because CFOs have actually become our biggest advocates for the program. Oh, really? Um, that is you, not usually the case. Right? Like you don't, uh, and um, the CFO of Dignity Health in Arizona, Doug Watson, he always says, you know, you don't always hear about CFOs, you know. Um, promoting new care models. Um, but the biggest pushback rate that I would say is the help me understand exactly this is going to benefit me if I leave that bed empty in my hospital. Hmm. Right? That's the number one question. Um, and our head of analytics, Patrick Armator, he's a cost accountant by training and he used to run decision support for a big health system. And so he speaks their language and he walks in and we lay it out very clearly. This is what you make when the, when the patient comes into your hospital. And this is what you will make in our program. And we show that margin accretion that is possible um, of a hospital at home program under our structure. And does that value proposition change when you talk to other industry players? Like I'm thinking, does it change when you're speaking to say health plans? 
The, the health plan value prop is always the same. We go in, we look at the historical spend, and we prospectively discount that new rate for us off of that old rate. And so every single time one of their members comes into a program, they know that they're saving on average, I'm saying illustratively, 15% for a Medicare Advantage member or 30% for a commercial member. And so they know it's going to be the same value prop every single time. Now, it may vary by market depending upon utilization and rate. And you know, Nashville is going to be very differently priced than New York City, for instance. Um, and so you always have to account for those market nuances. But generally speaking, it is a pretty consistent value prop to a health plan. So we've been talking about the value prop for the kind of classic industry stakeholders, the providers, mm-hmm. the payers. But the other kind of big stakeholder here are the patients and the caregivers and the family members themselves. And this kind of brings me back to COVID-19, right? One of the most tragic kind of elements of, of this, this crisis has been what it has meant for post-acute facilities in general, right? Suddenly hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, they were seen as dangerous places, places, you know, the last place that you would want grandma or grandpa to end up in. So there's an obvious preference for those patients and caregivers. How much has that changing patient preference influenced these kind of site of care shifts? It's really interesting. So before COVID, the biggest barrier to adoption for the model was the fact that CMS did not reimburse for hospital at home for Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries. They implemented a waiver the day before Thanksgiving that allowed an individual waiver that allowed hospitals to sign up for it. And if they could demonstrate efficacy and safety, they would get approved. And one of their primary initiatives, Ray, was so that patients wouldn't be afraid of withholding care because that's what was going on in America. You had patients that were concerned about either going to a hospital or yep. potentially having to get discharged to a skilled nursing facility where they would be exposed to others that had this horrible virus. And this created an alternative that previously didn't exist. And that has driven massive adoption from health systems as well as the patients themselves because they know it's an acceptable form of care. That is super interesting to me because it's not patient preference in a vacuum. It's patient preference influencing policy that ultimately benefits, again, you know, the patients and the the providers, the payers, et cetera. But is that something that you expect to stick around? I mean, a lot of these waivers are crisis waivers alone. Is that something mm-hmm. that you're, you're tracking for the future? Absolutely. And advocating heavily um, to see sustained for the long term. So to be ex- very explicit, this waiver for acute hospital care at home is only allowed during the public health emergency. Right. Um, various folks from CMS and uh, the Innovation Center for CMS, uh, CMMI, they've stated it's our goal to make this available long term, but they never hesitate to mention at the end of every call, this is only during the public health emergency. Let's say it does go away. Does that change anything for Contessa? It does. I mean, it the as i mentioned earlier one of the hardest parts about contessa and hospital at home is trying to create a reimbursement mechanism for a care model that previously didn't have reimbursement structures so when you lose the biggest payer in the united states yep it really makes it tough it, it's helped us in the interim because a number of health plans have started signing on very quickly and saying hey cms set the precedent we want to follow suit um, but if they do reverse course it it you know, I can't. I can't deny the fact that it will create challenges, um, but they're not challenges that we weren't able to overcome previously because we had signed up, you know, 
a lot of health plans prior to COVID. And it's a good reminder that as important as patient preference is for any site of care shift, you also can't rely on patient preference alone, right? Feasibility does matter. Payment does matter. Regulation does matter. It's funny. So, I mean, it's no surprise that everyone is concerned about the the solvency of the Medicare Trust Fund. I heard yep. one of your podcasts where you guys talked about that, interestingly, I think, becoming completely insolvent in the next election year. That is um, correct. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I, you are just you are just feeding my ego. Thank you. <laughs> so um, I will say that the feedback from CMS was a huge portion of it was what, you know, what impact will this model have on the Medicare trust fund? Because yeah. all of a sudden we are now paying rates for hospital level care that is being rendered in the home. And how do you prevent bad actors from all of a sudden dropping claims for hospital equivalent rates when the patient is not going into a hospital? Yep. We had suggested value-based payments, but completely recognized the fact that this is a pandemic and you you can't let um, perfect get in the way of good, uh, whatever the saying may be. Um, yeah. And so um, they opted just to pay the full DRG. You know, it's our hope that they move to a value-based payment. I think that will solve that issue, but you know, time will tell. Absolutely. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. COVID-19 vaccine updates are coming at us fast and furious. Let us help you focus on the most important headlines, make sense of them for your organization and patients, and maximize the success of your vaccine initiatives. Visit advisory.com slash COVID-19 for resources focused on your vaccine acceptance and administration and for other tools designed to support you in the ongoing battle against COVID-19. I want to talk about one other constituency that really matters here, right? Again, we've talked about the patient kind of caregiver. We've talked about the incumbent organizations. We've even talked about, you know, uh, uh, payers, including government payers. But I want to talk about the actual workforce, the doctors, the nurses, the clinicians that are part of this, this program. So let's start first with how do you make the clinical workforce comfortable with the idea of sending patients home? It's really hard. I'm not going to deny that fact, right? So we are asking hospitalists and nurses to take a patient that has always been admitted to the floor yeah. and now send them home. And it takes a while for some folks to wrap their head around that. What makes the light bulb kind of go off for them? I mean, I, I imagine that COVID has helped a little bit, again, because hospitals, skilled nursing facilities seen as dangerous places. But how do you help them make that shift? First of all, I'm nowhere near that conversation. It has to be led by our clinical team. And we've sure. got an amazing clinical team. Um, our, our chief medical officer is uh, Mark Montney. He's a geriatrician by training. He has run, he's been the CMO of three very large health systems, Ohio Health, Vanguard, and then Tenet Health. Um, and he walks in and he says, hey, let's just talk about what your care plan would be for this patient on the floor. And he has them describe what they would do. And he goes, now, what requires that they need to be in the building, you know, 20 feet away from a nurse that would preclude you from doing that in the home? If we can guarantee that we can get them back into the health center, if there is a complication, that we can get them all of those service and turnaround times that mirror what you would render on the floor. And so when he talks through those elements or a member of his team talks through those elements, that's where you start to see comfort. 
And the last thing that I would state is we always talk about a crawl, walk, run approach. Hmm. You have to start with, you know, um, I don't want to say easier patients, but ones that, you know, is well within the comfort zone of those physicians. And over time, they begin to acclimate to higher levels of acuity uh, for patients in the program. And I think physician comfort or physician preference is one piece of this, but I also have to acknowledge the fact that the workforce in general is going through a crisis of their own. They are, I mean, unbelievably capacity constrained, overworked, dealing with trauma, headed towards burnout. Uh, turnover is, is the highest we've seen in many years. And all of those things are especially worse in the post-acute space. So I, I completely agree with the comment, Ray. And it's been a delicate balance because we do equity joint ventures with health systems and you know, we're partners with those health systems. A lot of the hospitalists are getting extremely burnt out because their panel sizes are, you know, candidly, they're pushing 20, north of 20, 25 patients and they they haven't had a day off in a year. We were talking right. to the JB medical director that has been on since January 1st. And I said, January 1st, 2020, he goes, that's right. Dang. And by design, hospital at home programs require smaller panel sizes. So we're talking 12-ish patients per hospitalist. They actually prefer it. So it's, it's created this interesting dynamic with our health system partners because hospitalists and even nurses are saying, well, wait a second, I want to go to the hospital at home program because they can spend more time with their patients. They can be, you know, thoughtful in their care plan. Um, but I, it's almost like a relief valve for them, if that makes sense. Because they can deal with smaller patients, which helps with the fact that they are traveling from home to home. So you almost you almost can't see as many as many patients as if they're all you know on one floor. Are there other benefits? Right again, I'm thinking about the fact that turnover in the post acute space is like well above a hundred percent. I mm -hmm. think, uh, and, and part of the challenge there is that a lot of those clinicians maybe are seen as kind of the bottom of the totem pole. I mean, oftentimes they're not paid as well as some of the other clinicians. Beyond kind of panel size, what are the other benefits for the workforce specifically? Absolutely. I think it's important to note that we have two key team members that are nurses. So we have a recovery care coordinator that is virtual, um, who is sort of a charge nurse of the virtual unit. And then we have the nurse that is actually in the home rendering the care to the patient and they're at the patient's bedside. I think the number one benefit to those nurses is the reduction in the clerical or administrative work that takes place in a hospital at home program. Mm. And they are focused on rendering care to that patient and making sure that they have the appropriate care plan and they get back to their acts of daily living as quickly as possible. And I've seen massive fulfillment from nurses and their ability to just focus on the outcomes as opposed to documenting an EMR or making sure that they got the appropriate authorizations for health plans. You know, Contessa's mission is to make the healing experience enjoyable, not just for the patients, but also for the caregivers who render care. And we focus intently on how we enable them to, you know, really do what people overutilize or oversay as practice at the top of their license. And doing clerical work does not enable them to do what they got into medicine for. Hmm. And so we created our workflows um, specifically to achieve that goal. It's a lofty goal. You know, we're never going to get there, but we can continuously improve upon it. Can I reveal to you my concern? Of course. I completely understand why this would be better care for grandma, right? They get to age in place. They get to be taken care of at their home. 
I also can see a world where this would be better for the clinician who is doing the rounding, right? They have a, a smaller panel size, a more manageable workload. They're working as a team. But my concern is with capacity so strapped across the workforce and with shortages, especially in the post-acute space, what happens for the grandma that is at the SNF that's now down five nurses? What does it mean for kind of the rest of the industry? Well, I think regulation is always going to play a role in ensuring that those institutional settings are always adequately staffed. Right. They're never going to be to a point where they don't have the appropriate staff on their floor to take care of the patients that get admitted. Um, I think if you do have those instances, it should tell you that there's probably an overbedding issue with respect to mm. those types of facilities. Okay. And that, that facility probably shouldn't be there because I guarantee you there's an open bed at another facility where there is appropriate staffing. But if I'm totally candid, Ray, I mean... I'm competing against those skilled nursing facilities. And if I can offer a better service with a better outcome at a lower cost, I hate to say this, but that's what makes us attractive to health system partners because they are competing with those institutions and they want to continuously improve their market share. And this is a vehicle that it can enable them to do so. Hmm. And let me ask you this, with, with shortages of clinicians, especially nurses, and I should say a shortage of nurse experience mm -hmm. being top of mind for many, are you concerned at all about that for your clinicians through Contessa? I'm obviously concerned about the ability to recruit high-quality caregivers because it's, it's the foundation of everything that we do. Um, that being said, I do feel that we offer an amazing environment in which a nurse or a hospitalist or a nurse practitioner can advance their career. I think that they are mm. overwhelmingly coming to us and saying, hey, I really want to work with this hospital at home program. Right? We have nurses from each one of our partners that have come to us to say, I would like to move to this type of care model. And so, again, if you're offering a great service and you can offer a great environment where someone can be a part of a great team, that is going to enable us to attract the highest and best talent. Which is especially important for you all because you probably need more, more nurses and more clinicians than the status quo model because it's a smaller panel size, because they're going to Definitely. be traveling from home to home. Definitely. I mean, if you look at our staffing ratios, um, one nurse can probably, not to get really technical, but one nurse can probably take care of, call it five to six patients a day. Where, okay. you know, because if you think wow. about it, right, they've got drive time that's included in that. And so if yeah. they work a standard shift, they could probably make it to five or six patients. If patients are kind of later in their hospital at home experience, maybe they can get to seven. And that's, that's kind of pushing it. And we can still do so in an economic manner. If you look at hospitals, obviously, they've got, you know, kind of eight to one staffing ratios. They're on the floor and they can see a lot more patients in a day, given that staffing ratio and the shifts that they work. So we do need high quality nurses. We need more nurses. Um, but again, you know, we work hard to create an environment that, that makes it attractive to them. And, you know, the, I think ultimately when our partners look to us and the need or the demand that we have for nurses, they view us no differently than a new hospital that they're building. The CFO of Mount Sinai always says, hey, we've got eight brick and mortar hospitals and our hospital at home program with Contessa is our ninth hospital. And so he's got to staff that appropriately. So. We've been talking about how a lot of the headwinds that were previously against this kind of home-based care have changed, right? Many of those kind of classic barriers have, have come down, especially when it comes to things like regulation, reimbursement, et cetera. When it's all said and done, 
how much shift to the home do you actually think is possible? I mean, is this just a slice of the total care, moderate, significant, all of it? What are you thinking? Oh, we're definitely not even at the bottom of the first inning. Sorry, I'm a big baseball fan, and so I'm going to use a, a baseball analogy. Wait, hold uh-huh. on. What's your team of choice? Cardinals. Okay. Sorry. I'm, I'm, I live in a very strong Red Sox household, but oh. I will let that go. I went to the – yeah, boo. Boo that one. Um, <laughs> I went to the, the Red Sox-Cardinals World Series game in 2013, game one, and it was not good for my team, so congrats on that one. <laughs> so we're not, at the be- we're not even at the beginning of the first inning. We're not even at the beginning of the first inning. And I would use two analogies of new care models um, to substantiate where hospital at home is on its maturity curve, if you will. So – um, the first analogy that I will utilize is ambulatory surgery centers. If you go back to mm-hmm. the mid 70s, I believe it was in the mid 70s when the first physicians established an ambulatory surgery center in Phoenix. And then in the late 70s, CMS approved specific codes. And then in the early 80s, they approved several hundred codes to be reimbursed, um, to reimburse services rendered in an ASC. If you look at surgical volume on an outpatient basis in the early 80s, it was about 6 or 7% of all surgical volume in the United States. In, two, in the early 2000s, that was about two-thirds of all surgical volume, either in yeah. HOPD, um, hospital outpatient department, or in an ambulatory surgery center. And I think that's the growth curve that you'll see um, with hospital at home. Hmm. Okay. Travis, what's next for Contessa? So you asked about... What other surfaces can be rendered in the home? Obviously, there is a rate-limiting factor on that. You're never going to do cabbage in the home. You're never going to treat patients that are in the throes of an acute MI in the home, right? right. We're we're not that naive at Contessa. Um, However, we will and are starting to expand the services that we offer in the home for other high-acuity patients. We just announced a home-based palliative care program with Mount Sinai. Uh, which we're really excited about. And ultimately, we will offer everything from primary care to end-of-life care in the home. So we started wow. yeah, we started with the highest acuity and most emergent encounter with hospital-level care. We then went to sniff at home. Now we have palliative at home, and we'll continue to expand those services. So maybe healthcare goes full circle back to the olden days. Uh, yeah, I completely see that happening. Um, I mean, it's kind of kind of a lame analogy or or story, but I grew up in Louisiana um, and my father was an orthopedic surgeon. I used to round with him as a kid on Saturdays when he would go see his patients. And that hospital had two floors. Wow. And Baton Rouge did not experience some massive growth in the last 40 years, but that hospital is now like 10 or 12 stories and has several wings. There's just, you know, there's not that much demand for that type of service. And I think like everything else in our economy, People are desiring more services in their home, and you'll continue to see that adoption, especially in healthcare. Absolutely. Well, Travis, I want to ask you one final question. It's the question that I ask at the end of every episode, and it's kind of a moment for you to speak directly to the industry and to our listeners. When it comes to site of care shifts, when it comes to hospital at home, what's the one thing that you want our listeners to focus on right now? I think it's most important for your listeners, and I know that there are health system, health plan leaders across the industry that listen to this podcast for for obvious reasons. Um, The one thing that they have to remember, that it is a gradual shift. We are not going to talk about massive out-migration of patients from institutional settings to the home overnight, because it will take time for the industry to adopt. It's going to take time 
for the clinicians to adopt. It's going to take time for the payers to adopt. And it's going to take time for the patients to adopt. And so there shouldn't be this fear that there's going to be this, you know, giant vacuum sucking all the patients out of their facilities and thus the corresponding financials that go along with it. It is, it, it takes time. And just like telehealth took time and every health system has a telehealth strategy, hospital at home will take time. And every health system should have a telehealth, or I'm sorry, hospital at home strategy. So I think that that's the one thing that they have to remember. Well, every health that, system should also have a telehealth, should also be focused on telehealth. That's a conversation for yeah, another day. <laughs> that's absolutely right. But I mean, I think that, that there is this massive fear that if you take patients that historically resided in a bed and now you start rendering them care in the home, that you're going to go out of business. And that's not the case. These institutions have been in their towns for hundreds of years and they will continue to be in their towns for hundreds of years for good reason. Um, but we do have to adapt with change. And you know, that change is often led by the consumer. And I think there's an overwhelming voice coming from the consumer right now that says, hey, we want this service. And so I think that there needs to be that adoption with appropriate delivery or deliberate speed, I should say. Well, thanks, Travis. Thanks for having me. I appreciated the opportunity. We'll be right back with what our research team is watching this week. This week, we're actually going to revisit some of the things we've discussed on the podcast before and check in on how they're progressing. Pressure is growing among Democrats to reform the filibuster. We talked about this in episode 58. Much of the Democratic healthcare agenda will be impossible to achieve if the Senate filibuster remains in place. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and President Joe Biden two lawmakers who have traditionally supported keeping the filibuster, have recently come out in favor of a talking filibuster, which would actually require the minority party to speak for the duration of the filibuster. Think like we might see in TV shows and movies. Now, there is no guarantee that the reform will happen. And even if it does, the minority can still override the legislation but it would make the process a lot more tiresome, which would potentially create an opening for Democrats to pass some of their legislative agenda. Meanwhile, hospitals are slow to comply with policies enacted by the last administration. We talked about this in this segment before. There's a new hospital price transparency rule that took effect in January. But a new analysis published in Health Affairs found that almost two-thirds of large hospitals are not yet meeting the transparency requirements. Noncompliance results in a fine, but it's just $300 per facility per day. So it might not be enough motivation in the short term, particularly as hospitals continue to respond to COVID-19. We'll keep watch to see if more hospitals comply under the current rules or if CMS ultimately decides to increase the penalties. We're also continuing to follow influential partnerships and big moves in the technology sector. Patient navigation company Grand Rounds and telehealth provider Doctor on Demand announced plans to merge last week. The plan is to pair Grand Rounds navigation tools with Doctor on Demand's virtual care services ultimately creating more longitudinal digital care. 
This is, of course, following in the footsteps of Teladoc's acquisition of Livongo last year. That job may have gotten a little bit harder because Amazon just revealed its own virtual care first offering. It's called Amazon Care, the app-based service previously only available to Amazon employees in Washington state, will soon be offered to employees nationwide. And the company is inviting other employers to participate as well. Just like we said in episode 60, Haven Healthcare was never the only plan for Amazon. And the recent acquisitions are proof that the potential to disrupt healthcare isn't going away anytime soon. And as always, remember, we're here to help. Cool. That makes me so happy. I'm thinking, I'm thinking like, what business can I start with my family's name? 